electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on fast, crude crushed oil tumbling nearly 8% and closing below 100 bucks a barrel for the first time since early May. We'll hear from a top energy analyst who says the price of Brent could fall to 65 bucks this year. Plus, the euro plunging to a 20-year low against the U.S. dollar. One Wall Street firm says we could have parity this summer. The impact on stocks here and around the world straight ahead. And later, bucking the trend, the Nasdaq zooming higher today with names like Zoom. DocuSign, Etsy, and Meta surging. Are the growth themes about to make a meaningful comeback ahead of earnings season? I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq Market Site. On the desk tonight, Dan Nathan, Tim Seymour, Jeff Mills, and Victoria Fernandez of Crossmark Global. And we start off with that dollar move 20 years in the making, the euro falling to a nearly two-decade low against the greenback, approaching parity for the first time since 2002. The move coming as a 10-year yield continues to drop. The spread against the two-year flashing recession warning as it falls below zero for the first time in three months. Meanwhile, oil prices plunging once again, closing below $100 a barrel for the first time since mid-May. It's 8% drop today, the biggest since March. And check out how all of this played out in the stock market. The S&P 500 down more than 2% at lows, managed to eke out a, a gain at the close. The Nasdaq rising nearly 2%. So what does this tell us, Dan, that we priced this in? It, it was really confusing action today, and I think the outperformance of the NASDAQ is saying something, but it's also relative to money coming out of the energy complex, right? So you had a good old-fashioned rotation there, but if you think about it, it was risk on versus risk off. I'm going to take stock of all those things that you just mentioned. I mean, think about this. We had crude that got killed. killed. We had uh, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield uh, back at 2.8. We had gold get killed, and then we had the NASDAQ rallying. The yeah. flip side of that is that we have that move in the dollar. That is something that we're going to hear a whole heck of a lot about when we see companies reporting Q2 and guiding for Q3 or the back half of the year. And then that yield curve inversion. That's kind of problematic, I think, on, on a lot of different levels. The last time we've seen that, the last three times we've seen that, we've seen recessions, we've seen bear markets. And then the last one, look at these bank stocks. The major U.S. Uh, money centers all made new 52-week lows today. So there's a lot of cross currents here. We've been kind of highlighting that a little bit. I think some of the names that rallied in the stock market today, you know, had been just so pressed down into this holiday week or so. So it makes sense to kind of relieve a little pressure there. But again, I think we're going to continue to see rotations with the backdrop of a very confusing macro situation. I mean, really simply, we just take a look at the move in the dollar, Tim. I mean, that tells you that, you know, this effort to preserve price stability um, may be good. We saw the dollar surge and that's what the Fed wants. That, that yes. helps them in doing that. And so maybe they back off a little bit. Dollar is a major force uh, to take on inflation, and it's certainly another one of these forces out there. We, we came in uh, after a nice long weekend and a holiday uh, to see copper prices at 18-month lows, to see the, the decimation in the energy sector. Um, even just dynamics out of Biden talking about cutting tariffs on China uh, and things that are going to make goods cheaper here, the dynamics around what he's trying to do in the mortgage uh, market. And again, an administration that obviously politically has to do everything that they can. Uh, but what you're seeing here is the same rally uh, 
that we've seen for the last five days. This is the recession rally. This is the move from 350 to 280 at the low today on the 10-year. And yes, the, the yield curve basically twos to tens, exactly flat as we close today. Uh, and intraday, it was it was certainly uh, when we started, it was a day of, of yields continuing to dive. But the positives are um, you saw a almost 4% turnaround intraday in the semiconductor. So I will mention that yet again. And I, I don't think we're anywhere near in a place where real demand and cyclical demand in semis is something we're going to see. But uh, down 40% off the highs from uh, really just before we started the year on semis is a place where things uh, probably got way overdone. So uh, I think there was a lot of positive in what happened today. It's not a surprise that high multiple tech stocks are rallying in the face uh, of what are lower rates. And and an assumption now that the Fed uh, may have to pivot. Now, we're going to get Fed minutes on Wednesday. We're going to be reminded of the Fed's mandate. I don't think any of us on this desk right now think the Fed put is alive and well. But I, uh, once again, the market is doing a lot of the Fed's work for them. And today was a day uh, where all we heard about is possibly goods inflation is over. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe, you know, this is a market where you have labor that, that's actually strong and the consumer that has a lot more uh, power going into a recession. So here's a central question, Victoria, and that is, does your view of what the Fed might do and its impact on the market change because of the price action we saw in today's markets? I don't think it changes just based on today, Melissa, but I mean, I think Dan was right when he used the word confusing, and I think that's what the markets are seeing right now. I mean, look, there's concerns over growth and recession, and we get that. We've seen it from the ISM, the PMI numbers, all the regional surveys that came out. But we have this labor, this strong labor market. We're going to get reports on Friday. So I think the market is trying to decide, do they want a good number or do they want a a not-so-good number from the labor market? Because then it does say that financial conditions are tightening, that they are the market is doing the work for the Federal Reserve, and it gives them the ability to come off. But then again, you know, we keep going, we're flip-flopping on everything. Does that then mean that inflation expectations um, are no longer anchored if the Fed starts to pull back? So I just think there's a lot of uncertainty. One of the things I think we have to really watch, though, is the consumer. We talk about the consumer all the time, but I think we need to focus on the high-end consumer Right now, if you look in May, high-end consumer spending was down in May, and that's the first month that we've seen that happen. And we know that they change their spending habits when their wealth changes, their net wealth. So I think all of these things together tell us we're going to have more volatility, and the Fed may start to pivot after the July meeting. That would mean maybe even more volatility as people try to determine what the path forward is, not just for the Fed, but for the ECB. We got a glimmer of what high-end consumer spending might be like with Restoration Hardware's warning, um, Jeff. I'm wondering for for you, you know, as you as you view all of this going on, uh, and and Dan had mentioned the banks hitting 52-week lows, the yield curve inverting. I mean, what what is the trade here? Yeah, well, you can even see it with American Express, right? I think earlier in the year we pointed to that stock as something that was maybe indicative of the hiring consumer being maybe insulated from what's going on right now. American Express now making fresh relative lows versus the S&P 500. So you're seeing it in different areas of the market. We're seeing it in, in consumer sentiment. Obviously, that continues to deteriorate. And I think the bottom line is we're going to print another quarter of negative GDP growth. If you look at the Atlanta Fed GDP Now tracker, uh, I think it's predicting negative 2.1%. It's only been light by more than 2% once, and that was in Q2 of 2020. And obviously, we didn't really know what was going on. There were tons of cross currents there. The average miss from that tracker is only 30 basis points. So my guess is we're going to be talking a lot about, you know, quote unquote, technical recession here when those numbers come out. And 
ultimately that can become self-fulfilling in an environment where the consumer is already a bit concerned. And I mentioned American Express. Dan mentioned banks. Uh, look at copper versus gold. You're seeing weakness in copper versus gold. There is nothing cyclical going on right now. And you know, I might be talking my own book here, but I've been talking about this rotation from value into growth. So yes, the move today is definitely driven by rates, but maybe investors are starting to feel like, you know what, I want to be in companies where earnings are relatively insulated from the slowdown that is clearly upon us. So that's how we've been positioning our portfolios. And look, we're just about at earnings season, and the first ones out of the gate will be financials, Tim. And I'm wondering what, you know, we hear the argument, particularly from, I don't want the, you know, you and Carrie, investors and banks, that the balance sheets yep. of banks yep. are fantastic, that they don't necessarily rely on the shape of, of the yield curve or, or whatever. And intellectually, I get that argument, but they still trade with the yield curve. They still trade on this spread. And now that the spread is negative, that's what we saw in today's session. So what is the case at this point for banks? Well, I think it's a mixed story. If we, if we really thought banks were confined to uh, their earnings power, I, I think people would be piling into banks. I, I think, if anything, there's hesitation because people worry a credit crisis or some kind of a credit hit to banks' balance sheets is around the corner. Uh, we know the balance sheets are strong. We know uh, their capital return plans may be dented a little bit, but certainly the trend right now for bank and for financials investors for three or four years has been banks want to pay back as much as they can. Uh, I think the you know, you're going to hear a lot of, of headwinds on their mortgage lending market, you're going to hear um, there actually may be some strength in their net interest income. And higher yields uh, and higher rates uh, are certainly great for banks. But 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 again, I, I, I recognize we've priced a lot of bad news into banks. And, and you know, to me, uh, we have not gotten the credit hit. I will say, if you look at high yield spreads, I think we are somewhere up to 565, 570, uh, near 580. This is a level we haven't seen on high yield going back to 2016. So there's no question we've seen spread widening. I, I think that's what we're pricing into banks, but I don't think it's time to run for the door. You, this, you ran for the door. Uh, are you selling banks today? I don't think so. Yeah, you know, the lower they go into those earnings reports is probably the more likely they bounce on the way out of it because we did have those stress tests and we did have the companies kind of hint to what they're going to be doing as far as capital return. I do think today's action, though, pretty interesting. Again, we saw those money centers make new 52-week lows, and then on, on the day, you saw Upstart up nearly 10%, Affirm up 15%, Carvana up 26%. These are some of the worst stories with the worst valuations, even down 80 85% from their highs, just ripping today. So it just kind of gives you a sense of the sort of the things that investors are looking for. I don't think anyone expected to see this month start the way it did, right, at the lows today after the two consecutive negative quarters that we had in the stock market. So to me, this seems like a lot of chasing of names that are really compressed lower and maybe you get a little squeeze going. All right. Um, our next guest says we're in the middle of a perfect storm for the euro. For more on this, let's bring in Jens Nordvik, Exante Data founder and CEO. Jens, great to have you with us. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so there's a lot to sort of walk through with this um, drop in the euro, but it does seem to me that the ECB is in a real predicament in terms of its fight against inflation um, and its own currency dropping like they are, of course, bringing yields down as well. So what, what's next here? Yeah, so the, the key focus right now and the reason why the euro is, is trading so poorly is that we essentially have a full-blown energy crisis going on in, in the eurozone, right? So. Today is a perfect example. Like uh, we've talked about uh, crude oil being down dramatically. And then you look at what's going on in, in European natural gas prices. They are up dramatically, right? So we, we have 
a very specific phenomenon that is impacted the eurozone. And we used to always have like a, a trade surplus, a current account surplus in the eurozone. Now they have a deficit. So everything is flipped around. And it, for the ECB, it's a major, major challenge. It's, it's the first time essentially since the euro was created that they have a, a real inflation challenge to deal with, right? And they haven't started hiking yet. Uh, and, uh, and now we're already talking about a recession in the eurozone and, and the euro is going down. So it's an extremely challenging situation that ECB is facing. The, dy the dynamic and the impact on the U.S. dollar and rates is interesting as well, Jens. I mean, of course, we saw a big spike in the dollar index. I mean, it was up more than a percent in today's session. We saw a drop in rates. Um, and so, I mean, how does this play out? Because if we see a drop in bonds, traditionally that has been an anchor for U.S. rates. And yet we're seeing a spike in the dollar. We're seeing U.S. rates go down here. Yeah, so, so it is very often the case that when you have essentially global growth expectations going down, the dollar benefits, irrespective of what U.S. interest rates are doing. And that's exactly what we've been seeing over the last several weeks. And, and I have to say at this, at this specific juncture, uh, the global cycle is in trouble. And uh, different central banks around the world are trying to tighten into a, a weak growth environment, and they are not seeing the benefit to their currencies, right? So that is really the, the key argument to be constructive on the, on the dollar in a kind of bearish environment. And I think we're probably going to see more of that in the next one to two months. And, and we could even see a situation where there's now hope that the, easy, excuse me, that the Fed is going to relax a little bit. What happens if payrolls are strong this week? What happens if C CPI is again elevated in the next reading? The, the Fed will have a very hard time relaxing, right? So this rally we've seen in interest rates, if the Fed actually starts to push back against that, which based on the recent data, in labor market, they will, they will have to continue to push back. It's going to be a big, big issue. Hey, Jens, Jeff Mills here. So I wanted to go back to the ECB. I thought the point you made about the ECB's credibility being tested here was a really interesting one. Let's play that out a little bit further. You know, if they become more hawkish and they're unable to get rates to move the way they want, if they're unable to get the currency to move the way they want, you know, what is sort of the worst case scenario if the ECB sort of loses control uh, of the situation over in Europe? Well, the worst case scenario is that, that we just have uh, an inflation dynamic that is not under control, right? So uh, before the euro was created, we had a, a Deutsche Mark that uh, was perceived to be a very credible currency and uh, kept inflation under control in, in Germany better than in almost any other country in, in the world. And if that goes out of the window, it's going to be a huge problem for the euro itself. It's also going to be a political problem. And that's then going to exacerbate the, the, the challenges to the euro. So that's really the, the spectrum of possibilities that we're looking at. It's a quite serious situation here. Yeah, so, Wienz, what's your forecast for, for euro dollar? I mean, do we break parity this summer? That's the Nomura forecast from this morning. Yeah, so I, I think if the energy issues in the eurozone persist, i.e. natural gas prices st stay at these incredibly elevated uh, levels where it's hard for certain sectors to produce, then I think it's quite realistic that we break parity very soon. But it's a very binary thing, right? If, these, if the gas uh, continues to flow a little bit better and the inventories are building, uh, then we can see some relief. So we, we're watching literally the natural gas flow hour by hour in the extensive data system, right? Because it's a key variable. And if that goes south uh, another leg, we're going to have a full-blown energy crisis and the euro is going to take another leg lower. Yeah, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for Thank your you. insights. Jens Nordvig of Exante. Tim, can you trade this out for us? 
Well, and, and we, we didn't get a chance to ask Jens about his namesake. Uh, dollar yen to me is the most extraordinary thing going on in the currency markets right now. And, and I, at some point, um, again, you have central banks that don't have uh, the kind of credibility, I think, to, to even jawbone their markets anymore. Uh, European banks, we talked about our banks. EUFN is an ETF you can play to the European banks, and it, it broke to fresh lows today. Um, ultimately, uh, again, the, the, the question really is for the multinationals. And I looked at uh, some of the big cap farmer names today. And, you know, so today, maybe it was about rotation, but I, I think this really is a case where those companies that have the strongest international franchises are the ones uh, that are going to be under the most pressure. And I, I don't think we've priced this in uh, into the upcoming earnings season. I think we're going to hear about it time after time. So uh, dollar strength is is death for commodities. Uh, it tends to be death for emerging markets, tends to be death for multinationals to a lesser extent. Uh, and those are trends right now that I think, uh, I, I, I guess I'm not going to play dollar strength that much stronger at this point. I, I think you've priced in uh, an enormous mm -hmm. amount of mismatch. And I think you have to be careful uh, about being overly long the dollar here. The question is, have companies priced in this kind of dollar strength? I mean, we heard just weeks after Microsoft reported, they came out with a filing, right, about citing FX um, impacts. Imagine what those FX impacts are now or for the companies who didn't update their outlooks, Victoria. How do we think about this playing into earnings season? Yeah, so obviously next week when we start with the banks, I mean, it's just going to be a, a continual role of companies that I think will use the dollar strength as part of their reasoning for their outlooks, bringing down some of those expectations. We've been waiting for earnings expectations to come in. Um, the energy companies have been keeping those as a whole, been keeping them higher, but those discretionary names really have come in some are waiting for the rest. I think we might see them use this dollar strength. But when we talk about trading it, I agree with Tim, I don't think you need to go in and do a trade specifically on the dollar strength. I think we could see this turn um, pretty quickly, especially if we get the ECB raising rates. I know there's recession fears, but a lot of the, the change that we've seen in the euro dollar, I think, could be a result of the G7, the NATO, the BRIC meetings that we've had over the last 10 days or so, where they're saying that they're going to continue to see strife when it comes to natural gas, when it comes to energy markets in Europe, as Jens was talking about. So I think you need to be careful. Travel stocks usually do well with the stronger dollar, but we're actually short those names. I wouldn't make a trade on it right now. And I wouldn't sell your multinationals because of this either. I think you continue to hold those because of the strength of their balance sheets. Yeah, I just mentioned one way to trade it, I think, over the course of the summer could be consumer staples. They were showing really good outperformance. You look at the XLP, the ETF that tracks the sector, you know the big names in there. It's Procter, it's Coke, it's Pepsi. Um, those things were making new all-time highs a couple months ago. That's when the dollar was pretty, pretty doing pretty well. It was hanging around 100. Now it's much higher here. I just think that you're going to see those companies guide lower with lot, not a lot of clarity. And if I'm looking at the XLP, at a high of 81, it just bottomed out at 68, it's trading right near 73. That thing looks like a double bottom of 68 that wants to be broken to the downside for a trade. So XLP looks interesting to me. Coming up, a check under the hood. Auto stocks in focus as sales and deliveries head south. But could there be a U-turn coming for the group? That's next. Plus, a huge drop in oil as recession fears mount. But could crude fall all the way to $65 a barrel? City's top energy analyst will lay out his case for a huge drop in energy prices. Don't go anywhere. Much more fast into. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, 
the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Ford touching a new 52-week low today after reporting quarterly sales that missed analyst expectations. Meantime, Tesla starting the day deep in the red after announcing Q2 deliveries fell nearly 18% from last quarter, but the stock rebounded to finish 2.5% higher. Jeff, I understand you're watching a key level on Ford. Yeah, I think Ford's an interesting stock right now because it's not typically a stock you would want to own in a a slowing economic environment or certainly in a recession. And we have slowing wage growth. uh, We have inflation, lower purchasing power. We're seeing it in confidence numbers. Um, So there are a a whole host of things going on in, in terms of why you would want to shy away from the autos generally speaking. And even when you get good news, we heard from CarMax, their sales were up 21% year over year, but they also noted that their unit growth was down for the second quarter in a row. So not, not great. But you mentioned the chart and Ford, $10. That has been a key level for a very long time. If you go back to 2010, 2011, it was support. That 2015 period, it was support. It then became resistance. So we're right back down to that level. And I think at five to six times forward, you know, it's sort of an interesting spot here. I I like what they're doing with their EV spend, you know, $50 billion out to 2026. I understand that there are challenges with semis and production and all of that. But I do think that there's a margin of safety in a cyclical name here if you have a multi-year time horizon. Did Tesla go up just because the growth names went up, Dan? Probably. I mean, it wasn't trading well um, right out of the gate, like you said, Mel. I mean, I think that quarter over quarter, 18% decline in delivery. I I know the production numbers were decent, but they're not going to be good this quarter, at least this month. They already talked about shutting down those money-burning furnaces um, in Berlin and in Shanghai for a bit, and possibly even, um, you know, in in Austin. So I don't know how that helps the story. I know you're looking at me like, because you see how it is. No, money-burning furnaces there. Well, Elon called it. He called it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm just repeating what the CEO said. He didn't do a about it when he I'm probably just should have. clarifying for the readers right. that they didn't know what you're talking right. about. Right, okay. So they're doing that, and so I just don't know how that Q3 is going to be much better than, you know, Q2. So if we're going to keep talking about uh, a back end loaded quarter, and we're going to keep hearing about some of these other, um, you know, incumbents really going after it. So again, I, I don't have a position here. I don't like this story. Jeff just talked about the chart um, in Ford. I think that this $600 level is massive going back a year, and there's an air pocket down to 400 if it breaks that. I understand the incumbents going after, you know, Mark could be a problem for Tesla. Fully, fully get that, but it's not like it's an easy road to go down, Tim, for Ford, which has had problems of its own with the F-150 Lightning in terms of preserving margins. There's basically no margins on that vehicle because of the, the price of the components, particularly batteries. So it's, it's not easy going for any of these companies to compete. 
although everything else we're talking about on tonight's show, I, I think is auto positive, right? I mean, the, the input costs for all of these things, everything mm -hmm. from copper to metals to, uh, to energy prices. And, and look, we had GM who reaffirmed on Friday. Hold on. I mean, they came out and unless we don't believe companies anymore, they reaffirmed 650 to 750 a share, which uh, by my math has this thing at five and a half times uh, current, uh, current PE. I, I, I mean, so I, I, I know that if, the, if we're going into a recession and I know if demand is going down and if we impute uh, maybe oil prices into demand for gasoline in the driving season, I, I think these things are all incongruent, though. Uh, and, and I would sleep very well um, with both these automakers. And I have and I, and I haven't slept well in, in terms of the price move. But in terms of their ability to communicate what's going on with their business um, so far, you know, they, they have told us that this is a company I want to own. All right. There is much more fast to come. Here's what's coming up next. Crude crushed. Oil tumbling as recession fears continue to grow. But how much further can crude crumble? The details next. Plus, speaking of recession fears, a big warning sign from the bond market as the yield curve inverts. And one group is feeling the pressure. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Rough day in the oil patch. Crude closing below $100 a barrel for the first time since early May. And Citi calling for even more downside. The firm out with a new note today saying if there is a recession, Brent could fall to $65 by the end of the year and potentially to 45 by the end of 2023. Let's bring in Ed Morse, Citi's Managing Director, Global Head of Commodity Research. Ed, great to have you with us. Glad to always be with you. Thanks for having um, me. So it's it's a you know bear scenario. What what do you think is the likelihood of that scenario? Uh, the likelihood of the scenario is growing as the potential for a recession is growing. I guess the the experts who call it recession are about thirty eight percent on average that there will be one. That's by no means a low probability. Uh, we still think that the market will be weak even without a recession, uh, and we're still calling for prices going down to the uh, mid to high eighties by the end of the year as a result of supply-demand balances in and of themselves. Um, when you say a recession, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that you think U.S. recession. What does this look like if Europe falls into a recession, a deep recession, as we've been talking about today, with, with the euro plunging to 20-year lows against the dollar? Well, if the world as a whole goes into a recession, uh, and it looks like it's moving that way uh, every time we look at the, uh, at the recent macro data, uh, it, it would appear that prices tend to go down, commodity prices tend to go down 
to the cost curve, wherever the cost curve is likely to be. And that's what gives us the $65 number. But we think you know, that's where at uh, that level of demand versus supply, uh, that's the price that, that makes the market get into balance. And the same is true you know, across commodity land. It's not just oil. We're seeing sell-offs in metals. We're seeing sell-offs in the grains. Uh, and they're all well below where they had been at the end of the first quarter. Uh, and the second quarter has been you know, a sell-off quarter. Uh, and it's a function in part of high prices and a function of a slowdown in, in growth. Hi, Ed, it's Victoria. I have a question for you. I understand um, the price of oil coming down from a larger macro perspective if we go into a recession, but I, I struggle a little bit with the concept of not having enough supply. We look at OPEC spare capacity. It's probably not enough to have a substantial or meaningful addition. Um, Venezuela is not a place where we're going to go in and put investment until there's a regime change. We have China coming back. So it feels like our supply side of this equation is still going to struggle. So even if demand comes back a little bit during a recession, it should pop back pretty quickly. How do we keep oil prices from shooting right back up again to where they are? I think you need to look at the whole supply picture. You need to look at what's coming on stream in various parts of the world uh, and think about you know, what might be happening with Russian supply, what might be happening with Iranian supply. It is true that if the OPEC plus countries go through with their projections of where they're going to be in September, that uh, the main producers will have something like 2 million, a little over 2 million barrels a day of spare capacity. That's very low compared to where they've been. But it's also the case that we're seeing incre incredible increases in supply from Canada, from the U.S., from Brazil, from other places around the world, such that we're looking at 2 million barrels a day plus uh, between January and September of OPEC production growth. We're looking at over 2 million barrels a day, close to 2.5 of non-OPEC production growth. Uh, and that plays against our current outlook for about uh, 2.4, 2.5 million barrels a day of demand growth. So we're seeing uh, an incredible buildup expected uh, on the inventory side. Uh, and that's the critical number to look at. We're already seeing that inventory growing uh, in terms of product. We've had uh, more than a month's worth of diesel supply out outlasting demand in the U.S. We've had two weeks of gasoline demand showing inventory bills in the U.S. going into the heart of the driving season. Uh, we, we are seeing a, a significant supply response uh, as well as a, a, a demand response. Mm -hmm. And it's the balance between the two that makes you kind of look at the uh, OPEC spare capacity number and say, well, it doesn't really matter that much when OPEC might be having to think about cutting in production to keep prices from falling. Ed, when you look at the decline that we've seen in, in soft prices, um, I'm wondering if you think that if this is a lasting decline or I thought that there were certain issues such as crops simply were not being planted when they should have been planted because there was a war going, going on um, in the breadbasket of Europe. I mean, things like that. I mean, doesn't that then impact next year's crops? And so we may not actually see this decline last for very long. Well, you never know with the agricultural sector what's going to happen from one year to the next. You've got to take it one year at a time. Russia is clearly having a bumper crop. They're going to be selling it no matter what happens with the Ukrainian corn and wheat crops. It's looking better in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, it's looking like the southern hemisphere crop coming in to uh, this our summer is going to be more than okay. Uh, and even with Chinese uh, inventory builds, uh, there's something about the near a 50% drop in 
uh, or a third drop in wheat prices from the mm -hmm. peaks uh, that we had in the fall. And clearly some of it has to be looked at with a little bit of skepticism. That skepticism stems from the fact that we hit, we're in a very low open interest, low liquidity environment. We've seen a sell-off from that low liquidity environment that might have some exaggeration on it. But the market has gotten you know, much more uh, complacent, much more satisfied that the supply is there and it's there across, uh, you know, not just the ag commodities, but the metals as well, and now in the energy space. Uh, natural gas going down to 550 uh, is something that we think is really fair market value. Ed, thanks. Ed Morse of City. So on Squawk Box this morning, Tim, I spoke to Jeff Curry of Goldman Sachs, who says 140 for crude. And here we are talking to Ed Morse of City, who says 65 for crude. What camp are you in? Well, I mean, you know, tigers and leopards don't lose their spots and stripes um, on both sides of this one. Let's let's be clear. Ed Morse has been doing this a long time. He's a really talented uh, uh, commodities analyst. And, and I think his, his call here on where demand side has won out over the years is right, uh, except for the fact that I, I'm just not sure that demand falls off a cliff. And in the meantime, uh, leaving aside Russia, uh, Libya's offline. Um, the, the president of UAE said to uh, publicly, but to France, hey, we've got zero swing capacity and we think Saudi's got about 150. Now, they may be uh, completely telling the wrong tale, but uh, there is not that much. U.S. is down probably a million and a half barrels a day from its peak. And obviously, as much of their of our excess oil is going to Europe. I think there's a floor for nat gas prices at 550. It's been a violent reversal, but at some point you really do have support here. I, I think the change for a lot of the demand side of it, uh, I think this is a consumer that has adjusted uh, their demand habits, um, not because they have to, but because they want to. And, and I think that's what's going to be different about whatever we're calling this recession that I think has already been priced in. So um, I, I guess I, I feel structurally the lack of investment in energy is something that's with us for some time. Uh, and and I, I would take the over rather than the under to Ed. Yeah. Jeff? Yeah. So like Tim said, I mean, Ed knows more about oil than I do. There's no question about it. But even if you read his note, there's basically a 90 percent chance that oil remains above 75 through 2023. So let's play that into the energy trade. You know, I think energy is actually a timely long, even considering that price outlook. You know, it's the first time in a really long time that you can say energy is oversold. Only five percent of the energy sector is now trading above the 50-day moving average. 20% is the cutoff there. So certainly oversold. Uh, and the valuations aren't that demanding, even if prices come down a little bit. I think you could be early here. But at the same time, maybe the most important thing is that credit in the energy space remains really well behaved, especially compared to a lot of other sectors. So that tells me that the bond market believes that energy prices will remain high enough to support the fundamentals uh, of the energy sector. Coming up, a big warning sign from the bond market as a key recession gauge sparks up and it's putting some real pressure on big banks. We've got the details next and those financials fell. Growth stocks grew, but can you trust this rebound in these names? We're breaking down the moves when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Rough day in the oil patch. Crude closing below $100 a barrel for the first time since early May. And Citi calling for even more downside. The firm out with a new note today saying if there is a recession, Brent could fall to $65 by the end of the year and potentially to 45 by the end of 2023. Let's bring in Ed Morse, Citi's managing director, global head of commodity research. Ed, great to have you with us. 
Glad to always be with you. Thanks for having um, me. So it's it's a you know bear scenario. What what do you think is the likelihood of that scenario? Uh, the likelihood of the scenario is growing as the potential for a recession is growing. I guess the the experts who call it recession are about thirty eight percent on average that there will be one. That's by no means a low probability. Uh, we still think that the market will be weak even without a recession, uh, and we're still calling for prices going down to the uh, mid to high 80s by the end of the year as a result of supply-demand balances in and of themselves. Um, when you say a recession, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that you think U.S. recession. What does this look like if Europe falls into a recession, a deep recession, as we've been talking about today with, with the euro plunging to 20-year lows against the dollar? Well, if the world as a whole goes into a recession, uh, and it looks like it's moving that way uh, every time we look at the uh, at the recent macro data, uh, it, it would appear that prices tend to go down. Commodity prices tend to go down to the cost curve, wherever the cost curve is likely to be, and that's what gives us the sixty-five dollar number. But we think you know that's where at uh, that level of demand versus supply. Uh, that's the price that that makes the market get into balance. And, and the same is true, you know, across commodity land. It's not just oil. We're seeing sell-offs in metals. We're seeing sell-offs sell in the grains. Uh, and they're all well below where they had been at the end of the first quarter. Uh, and the second quarter has been, you know, a sell-off quarter. Uh, and it's a function in part of high prices and a function of a slowdown in, in growth. Hi, Ed, it's Victoria. I have a question for you. I understand um, the price of oil coming down from a larger macro perspective if we go into a recession, but I, I struggle a little bit with the concept of not having enough supply. We look at OPEC spare capacity. It's probably not enough to have a substantial or meaningful addition. Um, Venezuela is not a place where we're going to go in and put investment until there's a regime change. We have China coming back. So it feels like our supply side of this equation is still going to struggle. So even if demand comes back a little bit during a recession, it should pop back pretty quickly. How do we keep oil prices from shooting right back up again to where they are? I think you need to look at the whole supply picture. You need to look at what's coming on stream in various parts of the world uh, and think about, you know, what might be happening with Russian supply, what might be happening with Iranian supply. It is true that if the OPEC plus countries go through with their projections of where they're going to be in September, that uh, the main producers will have something like two million, a little over two million barrels a day of spare capacity. That's very low compared to where they've been. But it's also the case that we're seeing incre incredible increases in supply from Canada, from the U.S., from Brazil, from other places around the world, such that we're looking at two million barrels a day plus uh, between January and September of OPEC production growth. We're looking at over two million barrels a day, close to two and a half of non-OPEC production growth. Uh, and that plays against our current outlook for about uh, 2.4, 2.5 million barrels a day of demand growth. So we're seeing uh, an incredible buildup expected uh, on the inventory side. Uh, and that's the critical number to look at. We're already seeing that inventory growing uh, in terms of product. We've had uh, more than a month's worth of diesel supply out outlasting demand in the U.S., We've had two weeks of gasoline demand showing inventory bills in the U.S. going into the heart of the driving season. Uh, we, we are seeing a, a significant supply response uh, as well as a, a, a demand response. Mm -hmm. And it's the balance between the two that makes you kind of look at the uh, 
OPEC spare capacity number and say, well, it doesn't really matter that much when OPEC might be having to think about cutting in production to keep prices from falling. Ed, when you look at the decline that we've seen in, in soft prices, um, I'm wondering if you think that if this is a lasting decline or I thought that there were certain issues such as crops simply were not being planted when they should have been planted because there was a war going, going on um, in the breadbasket of Europe. I mean, things like that. I mean, doesn't that then impact next year's crops? And so we may not actually see this decline last for very long. Well, you never know with the agricultural sector what's going to happen from one year to the next. You've got to take it one year at a time. Russia is clearly having a bumper crop. They're going to be selling it no matter what happens with the Ukrainian corn and wheat crops. It's looking better in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, it's looking like the southern hemisphere crop coming in to uh, this our summer is going to be more than okay. Uh, and even with Chinese uh, inventory builds, uh, there's something about the near a 50% drop in, uh, or a third drop in wheat prices from the mm -hmm. peaks uh, that we had in the fall. And clearly some of it has to be looked at with a little bit of skepticism. That skepticism stems from the fact that we we're in a very low open interest, low liquidity environment. We've seen a sell-off from that low liquidity environment that might have some exaggeration on it, but the market has gotten you know much more uh, complacent, much more satisfied that the supply is there, and it's there across, uh, you know, not just the ag commodities, but the metals as well, and now in the energy space. Uh, natural gas going down to 550 uh, is something that we think is really fair market value. Ed, thanks. Ed Morse of City. So on Squawk Box this morning, Tim, I spoke to Jeff Curry of Goldman Sachs, who says 140 for crude. And here we are talking to Ed Morse of City, who says... <laughs> 65 for crude. What camp are you in? Well, I mean, you know, tigers and leopards don't lose their spots and stripes <laughs> um, on both sides of this one. Let's let's be clear. Ed Morse has been doing this a long time. He's a really talented uh, uh, commodities analyst, and and I think his his call here on where demand side has won out over the years is right. Uh, except for the fact that I, I'm just not sure that demand falls off a cliff. And in the meantime, uh, leaving aside Russia, uh, Libya's offline. Um, the, the president of UAE said to uh, publicly, but to France, hey, we've got zero swing capacity and we think Saudi's got about 150. Now, they may be uh, completely telling the wrong tale, but uh, there is not that much. U.S. is down probably a million and a half barrels a day from its peak. And obviously, as much of their of our excess oil is going to Europe, I think there's a floor for nat gas prices at 550. It's been a violent reversal. But at some point, you really do have support here. I, I think the change for a lot of the demand side of it, uh, I think this is a consumer that has adjusted uh, their demand habits, um, not because they have to, but because they want to. And, and I think that's what's going to be different about whatever we're calling this recession that I think has already been priced in. So um, I, I guess I, I feel structurally the lack of investment in energy is something that's with us for some time. Uh, and and I, I would take the over rather than the under to Ed. Yeah. Jeff? Yeah, so like Tim said, I mean, Ed knows more about oil than I do. There's no question about it. But even if you read his note, there's basically a 90% chance that oil remains above 75 through 2023. So let's play that into the energy trade. You know, I think energy is actually a timely long 
even considering that price outlook. You know, it's the first time in a really long time that you can say energy is oversold. Only 5% of the energy sector is now trading above the 50-day moving average. 20% is the cutoff there. So certainly oversold. Uh, and the valuations aren't that demanding, even if prices come down a little bit. I think you could be early here. But at the same time, maybe the most important thing is that credit in the energy space remains really well behaved, especially compared to a lot of other sectors. So that tells me that the bond market believes that energy prices will remain high enough to support the fundamentals uh, of the energy sector. Coming up, a big warning sign from the bond market as a key recession gauge sparks up and it's putting some real pressure on big banks. Got the details next and as financials fell, growth stocks grew. But can you trust this rebound in these names? We're breaking down the moves when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Spreads on the 210-year treasuries are dropping below zero for the first time since April today, raising a warning that a recession could be around the corner. This move putting pressure, big pressure on the big banks, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, City, all hitting fresh 52-week lows during this session. I don't know. Victoria, how do you feel about the banks these days? <laughs> So, Melissa, at the very beginning of the year, you asked us all for, like, our acronyms for the mm -hmm. year. And I, you probably don't remember, but mine was jobs. And the J and the B were both banks, J.P. Morgan and Bank of America. So, you know, middle of January, I was feeling pretty good about those picks, thinking I was going to do really well here. Um, and I haven't been feeling so well about that lately. But when we look at the financial sector as a whole, I still want to have exposure there. You know, recessions usually come when that two to 10 year is um, below negative 20 basis points. So we're flat right now. We're not quite into that recession area. But look at where banks loan balance sheets are. 10 years ago, the majority of that was mortgages. So it was the, the two to 10 or two to 30 year that really mattered. Now, the majority of those balance sheets are credit cards, they're auto loans, they're shorter, they're CNI loans that are three and five year loans. So it's that shorter term part of the curve that matters. And you look three months to two year and you still got about 100 basis points there. So I like the financials in the sense of a longer term investment. The balance sheets look good. They're raising their dividends. The loan pipeline looks good. But we have to admit there's going to be a tremendous amount of volatility around these names until we either get the bottom and things start doing better or the yield curve starts to steepen again. So I think you have to be very choosy in these names. J.P. Morgan, Bank of America um, are two that we like when we're looking at kind of the, the retail banks and Goldman Sachs when we look at the other side of that. What was that? What were the O and the S? O'Reilly was my O and Shockwave Medical right. was my S. That's right. And it's all coming back to me, Victoria. All right. Well, today's move is sparking some bearish options activity in one major name in this group. Mike Coe joins us now with the action. Mike, what'd you see? Yeah, we're looking uh, essentially at the marquee bank, JP Morgan. That traded more than 1.2 times its average daily put volume. And that wasn't actually as interesting as what puts they were trading, which were the June 2023 75 strike puts. We saw over 3,700 of those trading for just over $3 a contract. And the reason that stuck out to me was because the level, the 75 strike, is well out of the money. In fact, that's actually below the levels that we saw in March of 2020 in the depths of the early pandemic decline. So I'm guessing that this is some form of crash protection. All right. Thanks, Mike. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time coming up. It's been a rough year for Caterpillar shares. One of our traders says you may not want to be to bet the farm on a turnaround. He'll break down why straight ahead. But first, is today's growth stock rebound a good sign? 
why you may want to think twice before jumping in on today's moves and names like Zoom and Roku. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money, a winning day for tech stocks. The Nasdaq up almost 2%, bouncing back from a 216-point drop earlier in the day. Among today's big winners, pandemic plays and big tech, Zoom, Meta, Airbnb, and Alphabet. But our next guest warns the comeback is on borrowed time, and he believes the best place to invest may be halfway around the world. Dan Suzuki is a deputy chief investment officer at Richard Bernstein Advisors. Dan, China is the only place you're constructive on. Well, well, hey, Melissa, I don't, I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but it's, it's really where we've been seeing, you know, some pretty good opportunities. I mean, right now in this environment where profits are slowing, liquidity is tightening, you know, it's definitely the time in the cycle where you want to play defense. So obviously that's an area of the market we've been very, uh, you know, positive on. But if you look for things that are bucking the trend, things that have a lot of positive, absolute upside from here, um, you know, China probably sits in that camp. I mean, if you think about our process, which is about profits, liquidity, and sentiment, it's almost the polar opposite of what you're seeing everywhere else. I mean, yes, sentiment is bad, and we've seen it in markets here, but China's market's down 40%. You know, it's much, much cheaper on a valuation basis. From a liquidity perspective, they're like the only major economy out there that's trying to pump liquidity into its economy. And meanwhile, you're seeing in the data those first signs that there may be, you know, signs of bottoming in profits growth, which is critical. Um, and that's the opposite of what you're seeing outside, the re- in, outside of China and the rest of the world. If we think that there's going to be a recession in some of China's major export markets, Dan, are we still as positive on China? I mean, I'm thinking about the U.S., obviously, and and Europe. Yeah, well, I mean, absolutely, Melissa. I mean, if we're in a global uh, slowdown that may ultimately turn into a global recession, this is not the time, you know, to be peddled to the metal or risk anywhere in the portfolio. I think, you know, this is the time where you want to be prudent. You want to take down your overall risk profile, take down your betas and things like that. But in this environment, you know, if you can find the, uh, the diversifying asset, the thing that's uncorrelated with everything, with everything else, which China has been for like the last three years, yet nobody cares, you know, it's, an, uh, it's a great time to look. You know, I think Kramer always says there's a bull market somewhere. You could have this environment where, yes, you know, things are slowing, but on a relative basis, they could be you know, on the precipice of a bull market so long as the profits, you see some carry through in the profits front. Hey, Dan, it's Tim. So talking about some of the high multiple tech stocks, we all know have been the epicenter of the storm. And, 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 and what we've seen in the last three weeks to a month, you've got names like Zillow, CrowdStrike, um, that are up anywhere from 40 to, to 80 percent off of their lows. Uh, and, uh, you know, we talked about that even earlier in tonight's show. The dynamic, obviously, uh, lower rates, maybe less Fed. You know, the market's getting ahead of things. Um, any places there that you can be constructive, uh, a CrowdStrike that has, you know, 35 percent free cash flow yields. And, and that's what the market's looking for. Um, or is that stuff just do not touch? You know, Tim, as you probably know, you know, we're, we're not stock pickers. I mean, we're not looking at the, the balance sheets and the, you know, the cash flows for individual companies. But broadly, I would say, you know, it's a kind of a do not touch story. I mean, the reality is whether you whatever company you want to pick, whether it's the cheapest companies, the companies that are putting up the best cash flows or the highest quality companies, the thing that they all have in common is that they benefit tremendously from the past five years of record liquidity. And so, you know, it basically created a bubble as the bubble deflates. You know, the, the fact that they all benefited 
uh, uniformly means they're probably going to, you know, have see some pressure from that. That's what you've seen so far. And I think that's going to continue. I mean, if you think about the environment today, the time to be bullish on on these stocks as a whole is if we are going to see signs of a bottoming in profits or you're seeing signs that liquidity is going to get pumped back into the system. Now, in my view, the two certainties, you know, in this world of uncertainty today is that profits growth is going to continue to slow and liquidity is going to continue to tighten. That's not a good environment to be jumping into these speculative, uh, you know, bubble stocks. By the way, we, the things you were talking about today, all, what, what do they have in common? It's really all about liquidity. The inverted yield curve is a sign of tightening liquidity. The strong dollar up 15%, which, by the way, is a historical milestone and very negative for risk assets and profits, a sign of tightening liquidity. You're seeing that in the credit market. So tightening liquidity is not going in the right direction, and that's a very big negative from these big beneficiaries of liquidity. Dan, thanks. Dan Suzuki. Thanks, guys. Dan Nathan. Yeah, and I think all of that makes sense. I think a lot, at some point, though, some of the, the bigger names in the NASDAQ, Tim was mentioning a bunch of stocks that no doubt have benefited from all of that liquidity, and that's been a multi-year process. But a lot of those stocks have literally lost 70 or 80 percent of their um, value from their recent highs. And again, maybe that doesn't matter, but why are we sitting here looking at those five names in the NASDAQ that make up, you know, let's say 35, 40% of the weight, and they're only down 20 or 25% or so. They're the ones who are less worried about that liquidity going away. They are in, you know, gonna be impacted, or maybe they have already, of that kind of earning deceleration sort of scenario, but the moats and the capital and the management and all that sort of stuff will likely keep them buoyed. So to me, again, you know, I go back to, I find a lot of those stocks that are down 70, 80% really interesting because I don't think that what the Fed does or doesn't do over the next year is going to really impact some of those names. Some. And I did. And, and, and again, and yeah. I'm perfectly prepared to buy them lower, but I look at a name like um, even Meta for that. I was talking to a friend of mine whose spouse worked there for the last 10 years, and I told him I bought the stock, and he's like, really? He's like, really? I'm like, dude, the stock's down 60%. And, and you, you know what I mean? Like, So I think there's a lot of that sentiment right now where probably within 10, 20% of that being close to being over, in my opinion. Coming up, Caterpillar inching lower. Well, a bit more than inching. Shares dropping hard over the last month. One of our traders says there could be even more pain ahead. We've got the details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Caterpillar posting its lowest close since December 2020. The stock down 20% in just the last month. So should equipment companies like Cat and Deer still be thought of as relative safety plays? That's a good question. Jeff, what do you think? Yeah, so Mel, I mean, if you look at transport, some of the resource names and then industrials, year to date, they have outperformed. So to your question, can you still look for safety in those names? I think the answer is no. Let's quickly look at the chart of CAT. So first, a 30-year chart. There's this really well-defined channel and on cue and a turning lower at the top end of that channel. And if you look at a shorter term chart, breaking to new one-year lows. So um, you can look at CAT, you can look at DEER, you can look at UMP. All of these stocks are acting the same. That's consistent with what we've been talking about relative to the economy today. So I think these are your new underperformers between now and the end of the year. Victoria, what do you think? Do you like any of these names? Yeah, so the machinery stocks have not been performing well in our quant model at all. Um, so we're underweight there. Some of the names that within that group that are doing best are names like Otis and Cummins. It's not to say that we don't think these stocks can't turn around if we get back into more of that positive cyclical movement. But um, for now, we're kind of avoiding those names. All right. Up next, final trades. 
time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim. In mega cap tech, of all the big boys and girls, uh, Amazon has the best comps going into earnings, and I think you can continue to ride this bounce in Amazon. Victoria. We think military hardware and services spending is going to go up, so I know this is fast money, but if you want to name with steady, profitable growth, Lockheed Martin's a good choice. Jeff Mills. I think you played a little defense with Cigna here. Uh, the chart looks really good to me. The valuation isn't particularly demanding. I think it holds up better than most. Nathan. Yeah, Mills mentioned that CarMax quarter. I'll bet you uh, AutoNation has a good quarter and later in the month. All right. See you tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.